Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky provides a history of socialism and argues that there is a new threat of socialist thinking on the rise in America. He's interviewed by Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Senator Rand Paul, you are one of the most interesting people in American politics and especially in the Republican Party. I was a fan of yours long before I got the chance to meet you and work with you here in the Congress, eager to chat about your book, The Case Against Socialism. But maybe first just reflect a little bit about the role that you have within the Congress, within our party, as an independent voice, and as someone who's willing to strike out on issues that maybe some other Republicans aren't willing to strike out on? Uh, sometimes I think I'm a lonely voice, and you, you know how it is in the House. Uh, if you believe in balanced budgets or you believe we should spend less or have a limited constitutional government, really, you know, uh, controversial things like that, limited constitutional government, unfortunately, we never get any of the other side, but then we lose a lot on our side that really could be better at it. And um, I guess that's one of my frustrations, but I, I try very hard to sort of have the same opinion, whether it's a Republican president or a Democrat president, that, uh, you know, the Constitution was specific, spending power was ours, you know, things like that, that we should kind of keep our hands on. The power to declare war is ours. And I think we too easily give that up. And I think one of the interesting things that I've found coming up here is that Democrats are better on these issues when it's a Republican president they want to oppose. Republicans are better on this when it's a Democrat president. But when the parties are the same, they tend to sort of acquiesce uh, a little bit on sort of the idea of separation of powers. And in this book, you write The Case Against Socialism. It operates to me very much as a debate guide against those who would try to grow the left political movement by advancing socialist uh, ideas, embracing socialist dictators. Uh, right. Maybe talk a little bit about the need for the book uh, through the lens of which political movement is expanding or contracting. Well, you know, um, most people sort of hear the title, you know, The Case Against Socialism, and they say, well, that's a great idea, but boy, we wish it wasn't necessary. You wouldn't think it would be necessary. And it is true. You know, I was born in the 1960s, and we still were sort of experienced. And in fact, in the early 1960s, Khrushchev was just admitting to Stalin's, the, the terror uh, of Stalin, the pogroms, the killing, the millions of people who died, the famines. Um, about that time, you know, the, the Great Famine in China had just happened in the 50s. And so many of these things were just becoming known. But throughout most of my lifetime, people were horrified at what they learned at what happened with socialism. And so now we turn the page and we have polls showing young people, over half of them are like, enthusiastic. You know, almost half of them hate capitalism. And almost half of them think, oh, well, socialism is something we ought to try. And it's, it's perplexing to some of us who have actually, you know, read the history of socialism. But I think it is necessary. I mean, we have a couple of socialists over on your side. We got a socialist on the Senate side. And when I was a kid, I think there were socialists, but they were embarrassed of the label. They didn't want to be called socialists. So they were liberals. Then they didn't want to be called liberals but uh, they knew that it wouldn't be popular. Now they're really in your face saying, I am a socialist and we want to bring socialism in. They have a, a party, the Democrat Socialists of America, and they're proud of it. And it alarms me that young people aren't going, oh, my goodness, what would what, what socialism really mean for our country? And it has been in a short period of time that we've seen Democrat socialists really embrace the socialist brand as a growth agenda. Now, you said something uh, earlier in your political career, which I've never forgot about 
our prospects for growth and leveraging liberty for growth. And you said specifically once that our party needs more people who have tattoos and more people who don't have tattoos. So the, the question is, do we need to go find people with tattoos to join the party, or do we need to tattoo more people uh, in there, the party? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I said with tattoos and without tattoos, with ponytails, without ponytails, with earrings, without earrings. I, th I think we need to be a hipper, cooler party that young people would want to join. And so I think that's sort of part of the problem. Somehow now socialism has become hip or cool, but they don't know exactly what it is. So the same studies that say they're for it, not, uh, you know, like 10% of the people who are for socialism can actually define it as the government owning the means of production. They just, they think it's about fairness. And part of this I blame on the government schools, frankly. The government schools teach, you know, everybody can have self-esteem, and if your son can't spell, we're going to give him a prize anyway because he needs to feel good about himself and we're going to, you know, pass out self-esteem, we're going to pass out fairness. And they get this idea that somehow the government's going to make things fair. One of the things we point out in here is there's still a top 1% in socialism. The difference is under our system, it's at least uh, mostly or to the large extent based on merit who becomes wealthy. If I'm Sam Walton and I sell something you want and I'm really good at selling it and distributing it, I can become a billionaire. But nobody forced you to buy my stuff. And Sam Walton became a billionaire because people voluntarily bought his stuff. And it's the same way with really most billionaires in our society. But when you look at socialism, there's still a top 1%. You think Maduro uh, doesn't have the top 1%? They're his generals. They're all well-fed. One of the things we point out about Maduro, you know, the leader in Venezuela, is that the average person's lost 20 pounds down there. But he makes Ted Kennedy look slim. I mean, he's wearing the size 68 jacket or 74, you know, chest jacket. And because he keeps getting fatter and fatter. I've never read a book that better fat shames socialist dictators <laughs> than your book. Uh, you, you, you went down this project sort of as an interesting uh, endeavor in marriage as well. You wrote the book with your wife. Yep. Uh, you know, I uh, am not married, but I've always heard that wallpapering, to get, wallpapering yeah. together can be difficult. Just talk to us about the process of writing this book with your wife. And you write a beautiful poem at the beginning of the book to your mm -hmm. wife that I think speaks to a lot of people who have endured some sense of sacrifice and the notion that that sacrifice is linked to another human being um. that you love. Yeah, Kelly and I work pretty well together, and it's sort of like, you know, they, they give you advice in marriage is that uh, when your wife says something, you, you sort of divide up, you have things, you have things, and then ultimately you let her make the final decision. And that's not entirely true, but it kind of is in that I'm laid back in the book. I wrote a lot of stuff. And then she came through and read it and said, you know what, it'd be interesting to add this in. So give us, and, give us a, a Kelly Paul uh, unique sweetener or addition well, that she I would say that the, the discussion of the Covington Catholic boy was largely hers. And it, it really uh, got her going, got her upset, got all of us upset who watched this and what the media did to this. And sort of the, the link into socialism is, is that we've gotten to a point where we have sort of propaganda filling our airways. And, and under socialism, it's directly from the government. This is coming from private entities, but that boy was an innocent 15-year-old boy. Our kids went to Catholic school. He's standing there waiting for the bus. He never says a word. And yet all these adults on CNN were saying, oh, he has a punchable face. I met with some of these people a week later when all the truth had come out. We're still saying, yeah, he looks like he ought to punch him. And it's like, really? Do you not understand what you're saying? And uh, just that everything about that story was wrong. And I really hope that in the end, the courts will say you can't lie about somebody because there really is a court case here. There have been kids not get into Harvard because they do inappropriate things on their on their social media or whatever. He didn't do that, but he's being lumped in with people who are racist or who say bad things. 
he might be excluded from schools and ultimately from careers because people think, well, he was some you know terrible person. In reality, he never said a word. He never did anything. And the other side were all these terrible adults that were fomenting, getting in his face, yelling horrible epithets at both him and the others there. And this, the media got everything completely wrong because they had an agenda. Anyway, but Kelly was key in getting that in there, and she does a great job of, of sort of describing that and, and drawing it into this whole idea of what happens under, under propaganda and socialism. The, the Democrats and socialists we serve with in Congress, they tell us that socialism is really the path to fairness. So who are the fairness police, yeah. and, and how do you write about them? And that, that's a good point is, is that, see, in the abstract, they say we're going to have fairness. But the thing is, you have a conception of fairness. I have a conception of fairness. Uh, Representative Omar might have a conception of fairness. But for her to invoke hers on us, um, if we disagree with her, she's not going to sell us her ideas of fairness. She has to send the police, basically. And this is where it breaks down because and, – and this is, I think, why maybe it's become popular in the idea of fairness – is they conflate fairness with things like charity and being your brother's keeper. I, I believe we should be our brother's keeper. I believe in Christianity and the Christian idea that we have community, that we should take care of our people. But that has nothing really to do with government, you know. And they believe it, and then they conflate it, and they say, oh, well, charity is if I come to your house and take your money and give it to someone else. No, no, no. Charity is if you give of your own money, and it's not charity when the government comes. But it also isn't very charitable in the way the government does it because Ultimately, the more you want socialism, this is one of the points we make. If you want a little bit of socialism, the violence from government may be tolerable. If you want a little bit more, you're going to have a little more state violence. But if you really want to take the property, and when Mao came to take the farms or when Stalin collectivized the farms, truly there is a point at which people rebel, and the only way you can get it is really through, through violence. You have to kill the people, and uh, that's what happened under Stalin. Not just a few people, millions and then from that, we, we try to develop the question is, and this, I taught a course at George Washington on the dystopian novel, and the kids kept asking, is violence an accident of socialism or is violence inherent? Is it inevitable that you'll have uh, uh, violence? And I think the more socialism you get, yes, absolutely, it's inherent. Uh, the more, the closer you get to actually taking people's property, people will resist. And then you can't just fine them. You ultimately have to put them in jail or you have to shoot them. I interact with a lot of folks who come up to me as a young conservative and say, you know, how can I motivate my child, my grandchild to embrace the principles that have made our country great? And I would say the book really does detail out all of the arguments the socialists make, and then it goes into, uh, I think, a good historical context, good global context. The question, though, is when do we move past that tipping point? You cite a Harvard study that says that more than half of pe people under the age of 29 have now a favorable view of socialism. So are we, have we crossed the Rubicon, or do we have to go and, and win back this argument with people who have embraced that incremental socialism? I think we're in danger of it. And, you know, Jefferson was one who said every generation, you know, has to renew the water, the tree of liberty. And I think that's true with socialism and, and bad ideas. Every generation has to realize, you know, the, uh, the problems with socialism, what comes from it. The big lie, though, that's out there right now and the big sort of superficial sort of platitude they throw at you is they say, well, you know, the intellectuals in America used to like Stalin, but then we learned he was bad. We, that's not the socialism we want. Now, we used to like Castro. You know, Bernie was a big fan of Castro. But, you know, then we learned it wasn't so great. So we aren't supporting Castro. We used to like Chavez, but... Not so much what we really like is Sweden. We love Scandinavian socialism. It's the kinder, gentler socialism. 
And so a big point of the book is sort of disproving that. One, that Sweden and Scandinavia is socialist because they're not. They actually rank pretty high on the freedom indexes for trade and for a lot of other things. And one of the main policy things that Bernie wants is to raise the corporate income taxes. We lowered them from 35 percent, we're the highest in the world, to 21 percent. Interestingly, Scandinavia has been in the low 20s for 30 or 40 years now, and it's part of their success is they've had low business taxes. So Bernie says, oh, we want to be Sweden and Scandinavia, but he doesn't want the low corporate income taxes. He wants to raise them. Also, interestingly, Scandinavia doesn't have a uh, minimum wage. The other interesting thing, and this is the real big rub, and this is probably the biggest lie of the left, the biggest lie of all the socialists, is that you can have all this free stuff. You can have something for nothing. You have free college, paid leave, everything you want. We'll just give you free money and we'll only tax the rich people. And the big lie is that's not what they do in Scandinavia. They do have a big welfare state. There's a lot of free stuff they, free stuff they give you, but they tax the heck out of everybody. And see, Bernie and his clan and his merry troop of socialists, they won't tell you that because they want to just stick it to the rich, not the middle class. But in Scandinavia... Everybody pays a 25% sales tax. So from the poorest to the richest, 25% sales tax. Everybody also uh, pays a very significant income tax. So the income tax of there is 60% starting at 60000 Well, 60000 is the middle class. This isn't the rich. That's how they get so much money is they tax the heck out of the middle class. But you won't see Bernie or AOC going on TV saying, oh, yes, we're going to do $10 trillion for climate change and $60 trillion for Medicare for all. And, yeah, but the middle class is going to have to have 60% income tax. No, they're lying to you. They're saying middle class won't have to have any tax increase, just the rich people. Just stick it to those rich people. It's a lie. And so is capitalism zero sum then? Because that's the argument they make, that as the rich get richer, that comes at someone else's expense. And I think you use a variety of illustrative examples to go through circumstances where it's actually capitalism that is the rising tide that lifts all boats. Right. And we look at that because income inequality has been bandied about by the left and that it's this terrible thing. And we actually look at it. And the interesting thing is, is that... uh, You know, they say, you know, one of them points out that uh, Pakistan and Ethiopia have less income inequality than us. And I was like, move there then. You know, you think it's going to be great. And it really isn't about how close you are to each other. It's about what your level is. And income inequality, uh, one of the authors we quote say that it's sort of like a, a jealousy trope. It's about me caring how much money you make. In reality, that's just sort of a, that's a really a bad, that's almost a vice. That's a, it's coveting someone's property. Whereas I should care how rich I am if I'm getting richer. But it is another one of the big lies that comes from the socialists. They say that the economic pie is fixed and that if I get some, you're getting less. The truth of the matter is, and the statistics are overwhelming on this, that the economic pie is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and there's less poverty. There's a group that we quote from called humanprogress.org, and they're associated with Cato. Oh, just the statistics are just amazing. Poverty, in about 1820, 90% of people lived on less than $2 a day. That's how the World Bank defines it. They do constant dollars. When I was born, it went from 90% in 1820 to about a third of the world living in poverty in the early 1960s. Today, it's less than 10%. And so that's incontrovertible. We're just getting 137,000 people escape extreme poverty every day for the last 25 years. And so their facts are just wrong. They're just completely wrong. The world is so much better than it used to be. I mean, better and you water, take that antibiotics. Lens. Excuse I mean, me? You take that global lens. I expected the book to focus on a lot of the domestic policy reforms that you've championed to enhance liberty, to right. reduce the size of scope and government in our lives. But I think readers can expect 
a very global view of how quality of life has been impacted as folks have moved toward big government or toward liberty. Right. And I think the thing is, is that the facts are there, that the world economy is growing. I think uh, like the U.S. economy may have uh, doubled eight times in the last 200 years. It's just happening. Poverty is less. Everybody's richer. We're all doing so much better. In fact, I start out speeches now by saying there's never, ever, ever been a better time to be alive. I really want it to sink in. And this is not hyperbole. Maybe not in Venezuela, though. (laughs) You you take on Venezuela very directly, very early in the book, and you make some people eat their words on Venezuela. You seem to take some joy in pointing out that not only Bernie, but folks on CNN, even Oliver Stone, champion Venezuela as this great utopia. You have a different critique. Yeah, Venezuela is just such a disaster. I mean, people literally eating their pets. Uh, We tell the story of a young lady who uh, was a teenage girl, and uh, she has a gang, but her gang is to defend the turf of trash. So there's certain garbage receptacles, and she keeps people out of them because those are her garbage receptacles to look for food. How sad. People killing rats in the street to try to eat them, pigeons. And uh, it's just, it really is a sad thing. But kind of going back to the world economy thing, we have to understand why the world economy got better, and we have to understand why Venezuela is, you know, deteriorating into, you know, chaos. And that's I think part of what the book is doing, but it's part of also the debate we should be having up here, and we don't seem to have it in Congress, is that we don't develop, we, we aren't really talking about which economic system is better, and and nobody in the media seems to care that what AOC is supporting or what Bernie is supporting is Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and all these terrible ideas, and uh, they get away with it because they aren't challenged. You also trace the roots of socialism back even to the Arab world, which I think would be enlightening to many who would cast these Gulf monarchies and other Arab endeavors as right-wing governments, not left-wing governments. But you cite the Abdul Nasser socialism as a brand of socialism that's been particularly violent and harmful. And I think that's part of the problem we've had really since the 1930s. Um, Hayek and others said that when you had Hitler come on board, by the late 1930s, they were already calling him a right-wing dictator. And I don't think this was accidental. I think these were uh, political scientists who decided to, decided to develop a spectrum of right and left. And so they put Nazism over here and socialism and communism over here, when in reality they're just different variants of socialism. In fact, Hitler was very proud of his socialism, but he said, but like most inventors of something, he wanted to make sure it was distinct. And his was nationalistic, not international, and his was racist and obviously genocidal. But he was proud of those things, but he said this is a unique, he had come up with a unique form of socialism. And when you look at his uh, original planks, they're all basically from the Communist Manifesto. They're all the collectivization, everything else. But they did it is because after the war and people became so horrified with what he did, you know, with the Holocaust, the socialists said, well, we can't sell socialism if they think Hitler was a socialist. Let's call him a capitalist or let's call him a right wing authoritarian. The same true is in the Arab world. But I think the commonality and I think this gets back to the top one percent is uh, Mubarak, Nasser, all these people, all these dictators in Africa. Many of them had a socialist bent. But it was socialism combined with kleptocracy and enriching their family. But it happens under socialism, too. Socialism, they may say, we're going to help everybody out and we're for equality and everybody's going to get, you know, a chicken in every pot. And yet it always seems like, you know, like Castro's daughter's really rich, Maduro's daughter's very rich. They, the families seem to enrich themselves. And in that sense, you attack the notion that socialism is attainable by saying in the book that every economy in the world will distribute resources 
unequally, that there is no opportunity for full equal distribution of resources. And so in a world where there's unequal distribution of resources, you prefer merit over cronyism. Right. Do we do we fall at, at some risk in the United States Congress of sort of leaning into those elements of crony capitalism? And does that take us on the slow march to these bad places? I think so. And I think the, the whole idea of, uh, you know, how things are distributed and the equality of it as being a goal that if if things were equally distributed, the problem would be is that you would lack incentive because you you work harder because you actually want more of the pie. You want to increase your share of the pie. And so getting rid of the incentives was always a problem. Um, do we fall into the trap here sometimes? Yeah, because sometimes in order to get the things we've wanted, like reducing taxes on the economy, we've taken people off at the lower end who pay no taxes. And so now we have a tax system really that's a lot different than Scandinavia. Instead of everybody paying, we really are much more uh, tipped towards a very progressive tax code. Our rate has come down at the top, but still the vast majority of the taxes, like the the top 20 percent of earners in our country pay like 90 percent of the taxes now. You're very critical of the way that a socialist system can fuel a black market and how that can really undermine people's purchasing power and their opportunity to live within a normalized economic system. What were the most striking examples to you in your research of the imposition of socialism directly fueling that nefarious black market economy? Well, it always occurs, and it just yeah, there's a price point at which people start selling things, and it's sort of the problem with price controls in general. If you set the price too low, all of the goods will be gone. If you set the price too high, the goods rot on the shelf and the black market develops. And it's one of these things that I think even conservatives screw up sometimes is that what's a just price? What is the moral price of bread? There isn't a moral price of bread. It's where supply and demand cross, and you have to leave it open to supply and demand. And then the invisible hand of the marketplace and those wanting to strive for more profit also have more efficiency and more goods are out. Once the government sets those prices, we get into a world of hurt because they don't know the correct price of anything. So it's either too low or too high. It's never sort of the the perfect price that the market determines. But it leads to horrific uh, problems. It leads not only to the black market, to the violence of the black market, but also in several examples we talk about how under socialism it can't be tolerated. Because if you tolerate a little bit of it, it undermines the whole system. So you have to have informants you got to have families informing on families. you got to have neighbors informing on neighbors. And then after a while, jury trials are too slow, and the juries won't rule. So if everybody in our community is buying bread on the black market because that's how we feed our family, and we put all those people in the jury, the government's not going to get a, a, a conviction. So then you get rid of jury trials. And so things become more authoritarian because the, po- the policies are very unpopular. But people will, you know, it's like one of the examples in Venezuela, someone's selling stuff on the street, and it's a lot more than the price, you know, a lot more than the government set price. And he kind of apologizes, he said, but we actually have stuff and we're getting it to people. So we have food and medicine and people actually get it. We, we're sorry we're charging more than the official price, but with the official price, there's no food or medicine in the store. And uh, that's what happens. It just doesn't work. But it's all, and some of it could be well-intentioned. Oh, we, we want the price of bread to be 50 cents so everybody can have it. But then when they do it, well-intentioned that we keep it cheap, then there's no bread. And it happens everywhere. It happens when I was But a... Bernie tells us that <laughs> bread lines are good. You know, I mean, you, you, Bernie tells us, uh, and you've cited in the book, that when people are waiting in long line for bread, that's actually a sign of a healthy socialism. Yeah, well, we suggest that you go down and see what the lines are like in Venezuela. I don't think people are too excited about lines. 
Um, and really, it still ignores the great wealth of our country. I mean, our country is so wealthy right now, we do not have a food problem. We have an excess of food problem. Our, the biggest problem we have in health right now, maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest health problems is too much food. And uh, the poorest people in our society, I'm not saying it's great to be poor, but the poorest people in our society are better off than the middle class in most societies around the world. And we have to figure out how to get people excited about being part of that. And there still is a problem, even though like unemployment's like 3%, workforce participation, people who don't participate in the workforce is like 38%. In some communities, it's 50% of people not working. So there still needs to be this thing. And I think it's coupled also with our drug problem. People aren't working they're, you know, they're divorced from that whole process of having to get out there the other day. They're more likely to get into the drug problems. But we still have that problem even here, but it's a problem of plenty. And uh, every day, you probably hear it when you go home, the people with the businesses are saying, I can't find enough workers. I mean, our biggest problem in our country right now is can't find enough workers, but we still have a bunch of them who just aren't participating. Well, you, you clearly draw from the vast academic resources within the liberty movement, the libertarian movement. But I sensed reading the book that you are at times frustrated by the left's willful ignorance on how their own policies impact their communities. And you tell a great story about my colleague AOC and her coffee shop. Uh, And going back to her coffee shop and just the willful ignorance on how her policies impact quality of life. Yeah. She goes back and she's blaming it all on capitalism and everything. And the coffee shop is having to go out of business. Then they interview the owner. And he basically says, well, we went out of business because the minimum wage was too high and because the the rent was too high. There's rent control in New York and there's minimum wage control. And this is probably the, the biggest problem with the left is you could, even if you want to grant them big heart and that they want to do things to help poor people, and I think many of them do, it's that they aren't thinking through to the second order or the third order. They're not thinking through the unintended consequences. So you could say having bread be 50 cents, that would be so good for the poor people. But then six months later, you find there's no bread, you know, and then there's a black market for it. And people are selling it at a different price, but there's no official bread anymore at 50 cents. And I think they're unwilling to or they're demagogues. Now, some of them are simply demagogues because the ones who say, oh, we're going to pay for it with top 1%, it's been pointed out repeatedly to AOC that the 1% tax that she has on those making like over $10 million brings in like, I think it was $50 billion. But her projects that she wants to spend are like 60, 70, 80 trillion dollars. And so you would think they have to know that. And maybe it's just that they think selling Santa Claus is is easier. And it is. It's frankly easier to sell Santa Claus than it is freedom and liberty and responsibility and opportunity. So I always say they have an easier sale. But certainly aren't there enough people to know you just can't give people that just money doesn't grow on trees? Well, the, the math does become challenging, <laughs> but we have to, you and I have both been critics of President Obama, but one thing that he gets a lot of credit for, certainly message discipline throughout his campaigns. He repeatedly talked about the middle class and right. he pitched his socialist policies as enduring to the benefit of the middle class. Right. Uh, you walk through a number of circumstances where socialism wipes out the middle class. So talk a little bit about just specifically those folks trying to follow the rules, get by, how these socialist policies erode their opportunity to get ahead. The bottom line is once you get more and more socialism, you get less and less economic growth and you actually get to contraction. So, you know, there is no wealth. I mean, the the, the Probably the best example is Venezuela, where they have more oil reserves than anybody in the world, more than Saudi Arabia, and yet they don't have food. And so how does that happen? How can it become so desperate? And the marketplace never allows that to happen. And in the marketplace, it's growing, and there's more of this economic growth. But under socialism, it's, it's contracting and sort of shriveling up. 
And but it's not just one time. It, you see it time after time after time. And, uh, you know, going back to that question on whether or not, you know, violence is inherent to socialism, Hayek had a good way of putting it. He said that if the ultimate desire of socialism is to own the property and you have to take it from people and people will resist the more you take it from them, maybe socialism selects for the most ruthless person because it takes ruthlessness. Because when they finally come to your house, you know, it's like, I'm not going to resist the tax. I'm not going to shoot the tax collector. I'm not going to shoot the regulator. But damn it, if they come to my house, I'm, I, you know, there may be, you know, there ultimately is violence. And so who can do that? You can't, you can't have somebody who's a real passive, easygoing, kinder, gentler socialist. It ends up having to be Stalin in order to get. So maybe it's inevitable. The more socialism you want, the more ruthless. So that's why you always end up with ruthless leaders. If you really want to take people's property, you have to be ruthless to get it. And that really shows the life cycle of socialism. I mean, you know, one question I have for you is why do all these socialist dictators dress up as liberators initially? Mm-hmm. And you sort of go through this moment of liberation, government controlling the means of production, and then this strong authoritarianism and violence. Right. How do you break that cycle once you begin incremental socialism? I think that's why when you hear people talk about the birth of our country and talk about how extraordinary it was, that so many revolutions, you remember the French Revolution didn't quite end the way ours did. Um, ours was amazing in the sense that we threw off the yoke of the king. We kept much of our uh, religious faith and traditions and virtues that we believed in. But then we also codified a written document that said government can't get bigger than this. Government's bound within these these chains of the Constitution. And I think that we also sometimes don't realize how much of that is the English, the lineage of the English tradition. Our revolution, we think of it as being this abrupt thing when we throw off Britain. I think it's a continuation of the glorious revolution in England, of the Magna Carta, of their Bill of Rights. They'd been trying to limit the king for hundreds of years, and they'd done a great deal of it. We wanted one more limitation. We didn't want a king. And so, but it's along this lineage, but we were incredibly lucky that we got this constitution, our founding fathers. And people talk about George Washington not becoming a king and not serving again. We were lucky in who he got, but also lucky in the fact that they believed in a written document that would restrain, you know, the size and scope of government. Morality is an argument that the left often makes in service of socialism. They say all that data may be true, but the moral thing to do is to embrace this governing philosophy. Your answer to that is very interesting. You talk about how selfish socialism is because it forces you to look inward, whereas capitalism requires you to be morally in tune with the needs of others. Talk about that dynamic. Exactly, because if I'm going to be a successful capitalist and I sell something, I'm not caring about my desires. I may want to be successful, but I have to care about what you want. In fact, I have to care about everything you want if you're the consumer. So everything's focused outwards towards trying to get you to accept and buy either my services or my product. But if I'm a socialist, I really am not caring too much about popular opinion or pleasing a consumer. In fact, you know, when we, when we, when we socialize things like health care, they just say, well, yeah, everybody's going to get it. You'll no longer be bankrupt, no longer worry about your bills, but you'll have to have rationing. They don't seem to care that you'll have to wait in line for six months or a year for your hip replacement. It, uh, the, it's directed more towards their their ideological concerns of how they're going to do it. so how does that drive selfishness? Because, I mean, it seems as though you're making the argument that a country that is more socialist becomes more selfish. I think, I think that is true. And I think that it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, an irony in a way because they would profess to be, uh, you know, it's for the other man. Everything's for someone else. 
and yet in the end it is driven by selfishness and also driven by there ends up being an elite in their society and they you know they uh consume and and accumulate power and money and homes and everything else all based on the cronyism of their system Taking apart this Scandinavia argument is a big part of the meat of the book. It is also a big part of the debate that we have about the kinder, gentler form of socialism. But you actually point out trend lines in Scandinavia moving away from socialism, moving away from an over-reliance on taxes. Where do you think we'll see Scandinavia 25 years from now, and what trends do you see there that answer back the left's arguments? I think the, the probably the peak of socialism, like in Sweden, was probably in the 70s. And since the 70s, they've been moving more to the right. Of the five countries that are Scandinavian countries, four out of five are led by center-right governments. Uh, the trend line on taxes has all been down. And they've also been big trading nations. They're very much, uh, you know, involved with international trade and worldwide trade. And they have these economic indexes. I think Heritage does one and different associations do these. And they all rank pretty high. And I think it's important, one, you have to know whether they're socialist or not. Because if we're going to say their great success is socialism, we need to know whether they're socialist or not. And frankly, they're not. There's private property. There's ownership. People own their own houses. Uh, it's a massive welfare state, but it's not socialism. And it's welfareism. You actually yes. brand it. So, so walk us through the distinction between welfareism and socialism, and where does our country fall in that continuum? Um, and I think it is a continuum. We're, you know, if capitalism is here and socialism is here, we're sort of in the middle, but maybe a more towards the capitalist side. But we're a little bit off the center towards towards capitalism, not way over by capitalism. We've we have a great deal of governmental controls and governmental involvement. You in a critique lot of our, our social security system. You you um, essentially write a plan to reform social security tucked into the book. Right. And so in the spectrum of things, that's where we are. As far as like, you know, is Scandinavia socialist or Sweden socialist? They, there's a quote we have in there from von Mises. And von Mises said uh, in talking to one of his students, Murray Rothbard, he says, you know, if you want a real quick definition of what it, what is it one thing it requires to be a capitalist nation, and he says having a private stock market. Mm -hmm. And all of Scandinavia has a private property. So they really are capitalism with a big dose of welfareism. But welfareism basically uh, is paid for through high taxes, and you still have private ownership. But it's not something I'm advocating. I mean, for goodness sakes, to buy a car in Scandinavia, it's 100% tax. So you want to buy a $30,000 car, you got to pay another 30000 or 200%. It may even be a $60,000 tax. It's ridiculous what you have to pay. You don't think Bernie Sanders could get elected in Denmark? No, he's way too liberal. In fact, most of them have criticized him. And when he goes around saying Denmark is socialist, the prime minister responds and says, no, no, we're not socialist, mainly because they want to do business with the world. And who wants to go do business in a socialist country? So Denmark is saying, no, no, we're open for business. And Bernie's saying, oh, I love the socialism of Denmark. And it is kind of funny that the left in our country all wants to be Scandinavia. They say they love the socialism of Scandinavia. And Scandinavia is saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not socialist. Um, As Scandinavia sort of re awakens to this, awakens to the impact on the middle class, as they try to have a more capitalist system, and as America may be shifting more the other way, do you ever envision a circumstance where the two would cross? Maybe. I hope not. But um, the other thing that's interesting about Scandinavia is they obviously have a lot of success, and they have, like, in longevity and health and all these things. And uh, there are several authors that uh, we look at to look at the statistics and try to understand why. And there's some amazing statistics. So they always say Scandinavians live longer than we do and have higher incomes than we do. But here's the interesting thing. If you look at Scandinavian Americans, ones who live here, so there's Scandinavians that still live at home, then there's some that have migrated here for 100 years or more. 
their average income still higher than our average income in our country. And the argument is that there's something about culture and the idea of this work ethic that make a difference. And I truly think it is. It's, it's something that is harder to teach people. It comes from families, family structure, and it comes from community and church and things like that. But this is where we have to get away from this craziness of the government schools that say, well, Johnny deserves to have a trophy even though he can't spell. The problem is when we give people self-esteem or we try to give them that, we don't teach them the work ethic that the harder you work, the more success you get. And as we get away from that, we get a whole segment of our population, 38% of them who don't work now, who have never really felt the uh, sort of the, the esteem you get from work. And I tell people all the time, and I absolutely believe this, that, that work is not a punishment. Work is a reward, and it's how you get your self-esteem. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You get it through work. And there isn't one work that's better than another. You can be a janitor, you can be a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, a physicist. You get it through actually uh, trying to produce something with your mind, your hands, your body. And if you don't do that, it's something that's a huge, big hole in your life that is uh, a real big problem for all of our, all of us. You have a vision for the Republican Party that is far more appealing to a more racially diverse electorate. Uh, you've said that laws that disproportionately affect racial minorities should be subject to repeal. And yet the same people who advocate for socialism are the self-aggrandized racial justice warriors right. uh, in the Congress. And you write about the ability for racism to animate elements of socialism and that socialism may, cre may create a susceptibility to racism that you wouldn't see in capitalism. What's the basis for that viewpoint? Well, I think because uh, under socialism or when you view people collectively, you, you view them as groups. And under capitalism, everybody's an individual. And it, regardless of your skin color, your religion, you're all treated as individuals based on your merit. But if we see things as a collective, we start to see that there are group rights, that either there's black rights, white rights, brown rights, gay rights, and all this. And really, this is still going on and hard because it's so emotional with people, but there really are only individual rights. And the, the law should be blind as to who you are. I don't care who you are, what you do at your home, what your personal beliefs are. The law should be absolutely the same for everybody. But the problem is, is when you begin to recognize group rights, Really, the law isn't the same for everybody. The law has to be a little bit different for these people for group rights. They have to have a special elevation above the individual. And that's sort of what, what happens is that, you know, under socialism, if, if everything is to be distributed equally, the law or the government has to be unequal because society ends up, you know, you, when things are distributed, some people work harder, so some people have more stuff. And so to make it equal, when you make it equal, the law actually has to treat people not the same and it's just sort of the, this irony that the law actually doesn't have equal protection under socialism. In order to make us all equal and to keep readjusting us to be equal, the law actually has to have not equal protection but has to have unequal treatment of people based on their groupings of whether they're in the party, not in the party, whether they're poor or rich. As we redistribute it, we have actually uh, a lack of justice. You're very critical of China. You talk about their great leap forward being a failure. You talk about the erosion of property rights and the way that changed society. What do the lessons from China tell us about China's future and also the U.S.-China relationship going forward as they, as they uh, embrace these values? I think that might take a whole other book. But, uh, no, it's, it's a difficult situation. I mean, people have had a lot of hope in the 70s, Deng Xiaoping and the opening up and having more of a marketplace in China, people were very, very hopeful. 
and many people predicted that with economic liberty, which they were getting much more economic liberty, that they'd get political liberty, and hasn't worked that way, and in fact in recent years has kind of gone the opposite way. I tend to think that in the long run, the long run may be longer than what we're seeing now, that economic liberty makes people uh, more interested in political liberty. And so I, I think in China they are interested. I mean, in Tiananmen Square there were, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people that were interested in it. In Hong Kong you see people that are very interested in not being extradited to China um, and by the hundreds of thousands. So we can be disappointed that we still have a Chinese government that's authoritarian, but I think we can be encouraged that there is still resistance. How we get there, I don't know. I mean, so many people, and it, it sort of separates some of the more liberty-minded people from the neoconservatives. We all see the same problem. I see the problem in Venezuela. I see the problem in China. Mm -hmm. The neoconservatives think, oh, we'll just send the military in and we'll conquer China and we'll give them a new government and everything will be great. Uh, and that's unfortunately, doesn't seem to always work out that way. You talk about the purges that necessarily flow from socialism. I know there are a lot of conservatives deeply concerned about the fact that we've lost fair debate. The radical left no longer wants to debate the merits of economic principles. They instead want to deplatform, defame, and destroy those who, who hold these values that you express. Why does socialism accelerate the purging of viewpoint and thought? Um, I think because, uh, you know, once you monopolize the economy, the planning, you have to mon monopolize criticism, too. You can't handle criticism, and it's, it's a consistent theme. I mean, there were secret police under Hitler. There were secret police under Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao. Every one of these regimes ends up with a secret police to stifle dissent. And um, I think it's – and that gets back to the question, is that, is that an accident? We just – unfortunately, it went that direction, or is it really – inherent that they can't um, handle the, the debate because ultimately it'll lead to dissent and unraveling. Final issue I want to address. It would not be a Rand Paul book if there wasn't a critique of forever wars. And as the member of Congress who represents more troops than anybody else, I thank you on behalf of those military families for what you do. Uh, you write, uh, you're criticizing a, a particular journalist and you say, uh, I respected Eisenhower's warning that small wars could lead to big wars. I've never quite understood how one could be caught lying about his own opinion. <laughs> this supposed fact checker held the deluded belief that somehow Eisenhower belonged to the war crowd. And then you go on to, uh, to quote Eisenhower saying, I hate war. Only as only a soldier who lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity. And so as we try to guide foreign policy in our government here away from forever wars, what advice would you give those of us who try to have a realistic view of foreign policy rather than a neocon view? I think talk to the veterans. You say you've got a lot of veterans and soldiers in your district. We have two big bases in my state. And the interesting thing is when you talk to them, some of the most thoughtful people are the people who actually have served, particularly in combat. If we had a round table here with five or six guys or women who have been involved in combat, they're not knee-jerk that, oh, the, the Afghan war should go on and on. Most of them are like, hmm, we were okay after 9-11 to go get the enemy, but uh, when you told us to plant a flag and become policemen and build roads and nation-building, just mention the word nation-building and most soldiers will recoil. And that's the problem. They don't see themselves as policemen. They don't, they don't want to be over there policing the streets and building roads and doing all this stuff. And really, ultimately, it's a little bit, I, I make the analogy of like welfare. If you give people welfare forever, they never will step up and really, you know, take the world into their hands and, and become self-sufficient. Same way with Afghanistan. 
We're giving them $50 billion a year. They're never going to step up and truly do it. Will they ever step up and defeat the Taliban? Not if we fight the Taliban for them. So ultimately, they have to. I think that there is a chance. I think the military, those retired, those who can speak out, the, some of the polls show 60% of them say that we should uh, end the Afghan war. Um, over 60% of them now say the Iraq war may not have been in our best interest. So um, we should listen to them. We should also listen to the Constitution, which wanted to make war difficult. And some people say, ah, oh, that's all antiquated, antiquated. We can't really let Congress do it. Congress is so feckless they could never declare war. And usually my response to that is, the two times we've been attacked in the last 70 years, the vote was nearly unanimous. When we were attacked in World War II at Pearl Harbor, they had the vote the next day. We were attacked on December 7th. They voted on December 8th, and I think one or two people voted no. Same with 9-11. After 9-11, it was a month or so later. But it was virtually unanimous uh, for the war. So I think Congress can come together. And people have looked at it and said, you know what, we tend to do better and have better outcomes when we declare war and when we're all in, all together on it. And we tend to do not so well in wars that drag on and on and on and don't have a clear mission. But I have three nephews in the military. My father-in-law was career military. My brother-in-law was Air Force Academy. My dad was in the Air Force. So we see this from a personal point of view, too. And I just can't send, you know, a family member or your family member or anybody else down there without being very, very thoughtful about it and, and deciding what is in our national interest to be there. And we can't have one vote 19 years ago and say it binds generation after generation. I think that'd be the very definition of perpetual war. Senator Paul, thank you for being a unique and inspiring voice within our party and within the liberty movement. And thank you for enlisting your brilliant wife to write this book <laughs> with you. And thank you for ensuring that anyone who reads this book will never lose an argument to another socialist ever again. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it.